Welcome to the Survivors to Thrivers podcast. My name is Joshua Blattman. Here on Survivors to Thrivers, we come to stories of pain and suffering, seek understanding and transformation of pain's impact on life, and we bring old and new methods for healing to meet us where we are, real and alive. We speak with real-life survivors of traumatic and painful experiences, we engage with professionals and experts, and we help people's transition from survivor to thriver. Today's episode, number three, is with Rabbi Olivier Ben-Chaim. He was raised in the French public school system, spent time in a French yeshiva in Jerusalem at 18 when he moved there from France. He served in the Israeli Defense Forces, worked for a Fortune 500 company here in the U.S., went back to school in his mid-30s, and now is rabbi of Bet Aleph Meditative Synagogue, a synagogue that practices Jewish meditation and paths of mindfulness. Lastly, before we get started, please know that this is the edited version. For the unedited recording, please listen to episode number three, unedited, which I'm going to post next. And so, it is with great pleasure that I introduce this episode of the Survivors to Thrivers podcast with Rabbi Olivier Ben Chaim. Welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. I look forward to uh, to see what might unfold from this. Yeah, cool. Diving right in, this is a podcast to talk about the things we don't really want to talk about, the things that we kind of bury in the backspaces of our minds and the traumatic experiences that we have. And you had, I mean, so we just jump right in if you don't mind. Sure. I know you had a pretty severe heart attack about a year ago. Mm. Yeah, I did. Um, it was at the end of uh, one of our holy days here at Bet Aleph celebrating Simchat Torah, which is a very uh, joyous holiday when we take the scrolls of the Torah and dance around with it. And uh, for some reason, I was really into the dancing that <laughs> night, mm-hmm. as I like to do anyways. But yeah, at the end of that, as we were you know, cleaning up at the end and uh, putting everything away, and I started to feel awful. And my body was aching everywhere. I was feeling hot. I was feeling like I was going to faint. Tried to get a glass of water. I thought maybe I had, you know, danced too much. And uh, um, I just needed to, you know, rest for a moment. But the pain, you know, kept getting worse, you know, by the minute. So at some point, through a set of different circumstances, I found myself back in the main room of where we had our event. And I collapsed on the floor and was taken to the hospital. And I, you know, I, I, I didn't know, even when the ambulances came and people were working on my chest, and I really had no sense of what was going on. My, um, my, you know, I had no reason to feel or know that I could ever have a heart attack. There is no history in my family. There is no, I'm a, mm-hmm. I was and I'm still am a very healthy person, yeah. meditate every day, eat well, uh, work out three, four times a week. Yeah. There was really no no reason for this to happen. No warnings, no like... Absolutely. Well, you know, it's hard to tell. You know, then looking back, I thought a few weeks before, I thought I had a cold and I was feeling weak and exhausted and coming back from the gym, I you know, I had a hard time to recover more than usual, but... Sure. You know, you, you, when you don't know, you, you, you put that on the shelf with, you know, I must have a cold, starting a cold or lingering cold or whatever. Or, I mean, as a rabbi, the, the, there's a whole lot of Jewish holidays that happen in the fall. And maybe you could have just told yourself that you were just, you know, stressed leading up to that and just the preparation well, of all that. Well, that's, that's also of... true. Yeah, the, that holiday I'm talking about, the holiday of Simchat Torah, is the end of a month, month long, sometimes even longer series of holy days and and it's a lot of work for rabbis anywhere mm-hmm. um yeah so you know you, you your mind you 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 just go with rationalizing whatever you can mm. and explaining things away you don't want to worry about anything and and again because this was not in my consciousness this was not in my worldview i'm 43 at the time that's not possible, you know, it's just, it's not possible, so... Yeah, it's you know. not in your scope of awareness. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Now, obviously, right. it's a very different story. Yeah. But no, at the time, I had no idea. And so, you know, I remember being rushed to the ER, you know, the, the ride of the ambulance, and uh, 
the kind of heart attack. It was like a made. It was well. Coffee, it's it's, it's, like it's uh, yeah. It's called uh, in the circles of heart attack knowers. <laughs> it's called uh, a widow maker. Yeah. It's uh, well. The technical term is a hundred percent occlusion of the LAD, left anterior descending aorta. Yeah. And usually that, you know, that's pretty terminal as far as um, surviving this. Yeah. But I, I did, and there, you know, again, there's so many reasons why um, the universe conspired to keep me alive. One of which is where I was when that took place is just a few blocks from main Seattle hospitals. So, you know, it was a short drive for the ambulance to come and pick me up and, and get me there. So really the time between my heart attack, the onset of the heart attack began and the time they got me to the ER and they began operating was about two hours, which statistically is somewhat ideal. Yeah. Um, anything beyond that becomes much more the challenging problem. and dangerous. Yeah. So I was within, I guess, those um, those minutes, those hours. Yeah, that window of high survival likelihood. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You mentioned a word that, you know, something I wanted to key into. Sure. You said rational. Yeah. And you said that, you know, the heart attack wasn't in your, it wasn't a rational thing to have happened. Like it just didn't make sense based on how your lifestyle is. Right. And I don't bring that up to make it, you know, something that everybody should be afraid of, or that's something that should just be ah, like, you know, un- irrational fear, but like reality that this was totally, totally outside of the scope of expectation. Like, I think just the fact that something so outside of expected happened is kind of use the blanket term of traumatic. Or do you connect to that at all? Oh, yeah. Uh, in the sense that, so you're using that in the sense of, it's it's catching you by surprise. Totally by surprise. Kind of thing, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think I mean it's an interesting way of looking at it. I, I I you know, I know I have not I have not thought of it this way. Like is something traumatic you know, is something that doesn't happen that that happens outside of our what do we say, uh, our area of ex, of expecting it, right? Less traumatic than something that catches you by surprise. Maybe in the sense of we would have a greater ability to resent it even more because, you know, well, I don't understand. I did everything right. What I'm eating right. I'm exercising. I'm meditating. It's not, it's not fair. Like, I didn't deserve. Right. Like you, it's, you, could go, you could go there and, and yeah. feel, the, feel the pain of that and the trauma of that. I, I, I honest, be honest with you, I never, that is not something that, that ever crossed my mind. Maybe it's because of my spiritual training. I don't know. But I've kind of um, been able to move beyond story uh, mm. in the sense of, of, of making meaning around why anything ever happens and therefore needing to wrestle with that or justify it or fight it or, in this case, you know, as you are implying, resent it. I, I think I I just don't don't go there. Like it's not something yeah. that I where I naturally let myself fall into. Sure, I can connect like the word fall. Like you definitely, in my experience, it's like a like a falling into that resentment of why did this happen to me? Right, it's not fair. By this stage of my life, I should be, or by this, you know, if that never happened, I would be doing these things. Right. The why me and there's a lot of that comes from from connecting this perhaps to whether you know this this question is did I deserve it Ooh, right yeah. there is this whole story yeah. about you know if I had eaten poorly if I had never exercised for the last thirty years if I had you know never you know then maybe I would think to myself well I deserved it sure I can see that right and yeah. so. Like God's retribution kind of thing. Yeah, but I don't, you know, you know me, I don't have a God like that. Right. God doesn't... Sit on a cloud and throw thunderbolts? Right. Does yeah. d- There is no <laughs> such a God for me. It, it just, the, the puppeteer thing just doesn't work. There is no no sense of 
tit for tat, retribution yeah. for behavior. Sure. And um, which totally supersedes the whole like I think it's like a emotional stage that we everyone has to go through, or maybe maybe I'm like projecting, but like I think that that whole fairness, I think it's a fairness concept. If I do this, then I should get this. Right. Kind of thing. And you're just not even acknowledging fairness as like a as a conversation point. Exactly. I think I I, I don't. I'm not. Uh, it's true. I, I don't expect a, a fairness. I don't expect um, anything to be just. Um, and that that makes me maybe look at life um, from a different place because I I don't tend to um, superimpose on my experience an attachment to certain way, certain outcome, certain expectations. Mm -hmm. So in in that sense, I, you know, I don't. In my mind, that makes it hard to plan for the future at the same time because if you don't. If you don't set expectations, if you don't make plans, how do you, at the same time, look forward to things? Well, you can make plans. I mean, you know, everybody makes plans. You know, you make, you know, you look at your calendar and you make plans to be at some place at some time. You make plans. Everybody makes plans. Sure. Um, you know, I have a couple of kids and uh, I have to make plans to make sure that, you know, they are safe, educated, whatever, right? Everybody right. makes plans. The, right. the, the point is not whether or not you make plans or look into the, the future and, and try to set a course for your life. I think all of us, all of us do that. The, the point is that though you, you do it, though you do those planning and you set a certain vision for yourself, for your family, for the place in where you work, you set a vision for the future for that, um, the difference is that you don't get attached to any outcome. Like you can make plans, but mm -hmm. then you have to yeah. um, be with what is in the moment that you live in. Um, and, and, and that moment might be and probably will be, uh, in fact, probably always is, different from what you had envisioned, from what you had plan for for what you had expected i mean none of our expectations get manifest 100 percent exactly as we yeah. had pictured right. them in our minds it's just not right. how it works so the point is really to let go for me i mean it's just um making plans but letting go of the outcome of it sure you know so you act it's it's a different kind of acting then because since you don't you don't have an attachment to whatever will unfold or or the way it will unfold right then you can you can you can flow with life as it happens and make adjust adjustments and and change course as things unfold to just be like almost like coldly accurate it feels like an incredibly useful idea to to not be attached to any outcome just because that's what that works better. Mm -hmm. It's just such a more transparent way than I think that most people have attachments to outcomes, and that's kind of a it's kind of a self help catchphrase. I, you know, detachment. I don't use the word detachment. I okay. use the word non attachment. How's that different? Uh, to me, detachment feels like you are cutting your emotional uh, your emotional effect from it. De to be detached from something is like cutting it off from your life. Sure. Cutting it off from your consciousness mm -hmm. and losing the effect, you know, losing this, I, I don't know how to say it. Non-attachment means you're still part of it, right? But you're not attached to, let me put it a different way, you're not attached to controlling it, mm -hmm. right? You let go of your need for control. Sure. And in the moment of my heart attack, since that's where we started, a sure. lot of that happened. That being that being non letting go of control, interesting. And we're probably going to talk about it a little bit later. But let, let to, to just maybe conclude this, or continue that thought. When you're detached, it's like you're no longer you're no longer there. For you're not where, present even. Right. You're not even detached. present. Yeah. Right. When you're not attached, you're present. Right. But you're not 
needing to control whatever is unfolding. Sure, you're not tied to the outcome. You're not attached to the outcome while you are still attached to being in the moment. What and Yes, exactly. And what that gives you, again, like mm-hmm. I said earlier, is that if whatever you, know, whatever you set in motion suddenly veers to the left or veers to the right, mm-hmm. then you're not stuck in wanting it to still go straight. Yeah. Right? You look at it and you say, oh, look, it's going to the left or it's veering to the right. It looks like it's being pulled into this direction. Mm-hmm. And then because you're not attached to it going straight as you had really wanted it to go, mm-hmm. because you were attached to it ending up exactly where you wanted it to, right? It's not going to end up there. Now it's clear, right? But if you're not, you know, fixated on your position or your needs and your wants mm-hmm. and you can flow with what what this is doing now is moving in this direction then you're able to flow with that and say okay mm-hmm. let's see let's explore that where is that going maybe mm-hmm. maybe who knows that might be a better end yeah. than what i want or right. what i had imagined mm-hmm. and let's let's move our energies then with that and so it allows you to to move in life Really, to move in life much more fluidly. Smoothly. And I can imagine how probably some physicists can say that even if something turns, it's still going straight in some plane. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know about that. I don't know. I just started to think. <laughs> I'm getting something super in my head. Um, I'm not a physicist. <laughs> I don't, don't even play one on TV. So. Oh. <laughs> uh, so I can kind of see how this might shape your identity i want to get into identity a little bit all right and like how has the heart attack like what your identity beforehand your identity with that is it a label of like oh i'm a heart attack survivor or Mm -hmm. or is it still just the awareness of now and how has that affected if it has uh and i'm treading lightly here with this question because it's about your family and not just for you but like the people that are close to you and people that are in your nuclear bubble well, so you mentioned uh, the word, you know, trauma earlier. And I think when something like this happens, no matter how the person who goes through that event lives it, mm-hmm. it in, in a lot of ways traumatizes the people closest to him or her. Mm-hmm. So I would say that the trauma is, is shared in this case because... Um, because my children, my wife, um, you know, the people who were there that night when this unfolded, mm-hmm. uh, members of Beralef, um, our executive director, I mean, people who are very close to me, um, also lived through that event. I mean, it was their event just as much as it was my event. You know, we don't, we don't live in, um, you know, in a vacuum. Yeah. And I lived it, you know, on that side of the doors of the ER or the operating room, but they lived it on the other side of that door in the waiting room. Yeah. Um, not knowing yeah. if they were going to ever see me alive or not. And those were definitely traumatic hours for everyone who was there. So, so you now we can talk about, of of those of us who have lived through. Sorry to interrupt. A very good friend of ours is a, a social worker, and she said um, that phenomenon is kind of is called secondary trauma. Uh huh. Yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah. So yeah, I like that. It's a it's a it's a really good expression. I'm sure somebody somewhere has written about it. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's it's the analogy, which is a bad analogy, but it's you know secondhand smokers. You know, but you know, it's like it it affects you. No matter yeah. what, and and so what I, you know, my 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 daughter, this Shabbat, this Sabbath, the Friday night, we were all around the dining table, and it's been a really long time since the four of us could have, um, because of my work and because of other family family things, we you know we haven't had for the for several number of weeks the chance for the four of us to be together around the table for Shabbat mm-hmm. for our Friday night Sabbath dinner. Our tradition is to share gratitudes, mm-hmm. you know, so it's been, you know, now my heart attack was a year and two weeks ago or three weeks ago, something like that. So it's mm-hmm. been a while, yeah. but, you know, 
one of the things my daughter said on Friday was that um, how grateful she was that I was still around. And, um, yeah. you know, with tears in her eyes, literally saying that she didn't know, and I'm paraphrasing here, but she didn't know how her life would be possible still, mm. you know, today, if, mm. I, if, I wasn't, if I wasn't here. Yeah. How she would be able to go through whatever her day-to-day things and she's you know she's a teenager and at that age a lot of a lot of things are happening and a lot of questions are are being asked and a lot of discovering is taking place and uh yeah it would have been really uh, you know it touched me again when she said that my my son for about eight nine months even had um difficulties sleeping at night and nightmares mm. You know, he's, he's 11, so it's also uh, a time in, uh, in a child's life, oftentimes, where, peop- where, where they are wrestling with death and dying and mm-hmm. what that means. Yeah. Um, so it was, it, you know, it just happened at that time for him, at the sa- you know, at the same time. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I, my wife, too, you know, oftentimes we look at each other and start crying and, you know, it's um, it's a traumatic experience for everybody. Yeah. yeah. Deep breath. That's kind of... mm-hmm. The next thing I really wanted to talk about was emotions, yeah. um, but particularly grief. Um, in my own experience with, you know, a near death and like car accident and coma and like, I don't know who I am kind of stuff. I've learned that for me, grieving who I shoulda, coulda, woulda, like all those shoulda, coulda, wouldas that... Yes don't exist except right. in that identity concept of who we thought we should, should have, could have, would have been right. Grieving that loss. I don't know that our culture really has a way to do that. Like language for it or the acceptance of it. And for me, like grief, just recognizing that grief was there was such a huge, huge, like that was the boulder blocking the way. Mm. So I'm interested almost to recognize any kind of similar experience for you in relationship to that concept of grief. And if you've like, acknowledge, like if there's been an acknowledgement of that, I don't know what So you, you're talking about, um, in your experience, just to help me, um, sure. Um, for a second. Yeah. Your experience was that surviving the, the this, car accidents this mm-hmm. and then time in, in being in a coma and then coming out of this grieving who josh was before well, that what or what how do you define the grief sure well I'm sorry i'm turning the tables around <laughs> here uh i guess that's only it's only reasonable right okay. uh well for me the the grieving concept was that like you know the accident happened at a very transitional period, right between high school and college. Mm. And I was very well attended to medically uh-huh. and hold me holistically through my, my family. Just they're very knowledgeable about medical things and treatments and energy thing, energy treatments and such. And that attended to all the physical things. So physically, healthily, I, you know, i um, in great shape physically, but like I didn't recognize what is popularly known as PTSD or post-traumatic right. stress disorder until, a, I don't know, like I, I didn't even know what it was or how I, it's mostly been in my experience, a military concept or for, or for like veterans, um, who've come home. And I started to get some, um, counseling like a, I don't know, a year and a half ago or so, and then trickle forward um, I was shown a Venn diagram of PTSD and TBI, uh, so that coma had a traumatic brain injury attached to it, and I knew and I accepted the the TBI, and I get that that was part of it, but like when I saw that Venn diagram and I saw that all the TBI symptoms had pretty much alleviated themselves, which I attribute mostly to the the healthcare I received, but the PTSD symptoms, the things listed in the circle for the PTSD, were like definitely definitely present like um hypervigilance and like hyperarousal and inability to concentrate and then i saw you know the things that were in the middle of the two circles between ptsd and tbi and I, those were the like the worst ones and those are the ones that were most having the largest impact on my experience 
And once I got that label, and I know it's like an identity thing, <laughs> once I was able to see that that was like there was a label, and with that label, there's a whole world of treatment options right. that we that you know have become much more widely known in the last 10, 15 years. Sure, from EMDR to somatic What's EMDR. Uh, EMDR is eye movement uh, reprocessing and desensitization. Uh huh. I think it's based on the concept that your eyes go through your brain and through the part of your brain that is in charge of fight or flight and then go straight to your, uh, the top of your spinal cord. Okay. And then that way you can have like fight or flight based on what you see. Mm. And while that's super useful in, Ooh, there's a lion chasing me. I better go. It's not super useful when any normal (laughs) situation. So what what was the grief part in that? So thank you. So the grief part, thanks for bringing me back full circle. The grief part was recognizing that not holding on to some idea of what shoulda, coulda, woulda, and recognizing and accepting that where I am is better than where I could have been otherwise. Because who knows what could have happened. Maybe in college I would have, you know, if, if that hadn't happened, maybe I, who knows, and I could have, I could have died some other way. Right. And how lucky am I to be alive right here, right now, right. exactly where I am, exactly how I am. And it all softened. And that disconnection, like the, the no longer being willing to say, why well, should have, could have, would have, and just separating myself from, from that idea. Right. Of, of like, I'm not where I should be right now. I have really been thinking a ton about this and there's like that moment and like the Jewish tree of life. And I'm going to get to this. I think this is so interesting. I want to hear your perspective on it. So in, in my mind, like, you know, time is commonly linear. And so we think we're going from a to B in a straight line. And then we have, but the reality is we have these moments of what I call meta overwhelm or universal overwhelm or like whatever, idea i'm trying to put words to an idea and so they're inevitably going to be in imperfect but that meta overwhelm moment is like to define it when every fiber of your being goes like clicks at the same time and says nope you know this doesn't work right now whatever this is all my systems are overloaded and you almost have like for me it's almost like there's a a personality split Hmm. Um, maybe it's, maybe that's more related to brain injury specifically than heart, than like, you know, a heart attack. But like, it's almost like there's a personal schism where part of your, like your, your body in time keeps going straight, but your personality like juts off to the left. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then for years after that, you've got, you know, your body person, your body in time and then your mind in time and they don't line up. And I find that a lot of people who are stuck in storyland and who relate to other people's experiences or who through communication don't actually share an emotional connection with the person they're having an experience with, they relate to the person in the moment through some story that they remember. Right. And to me, that is, that's a marked example, a marked example of the schism between their physical body and their emotional body. Yeah. I don't know if that relate. If, yeah. If that, does that connect to you in any way? Yeah, um, I mean, I, I, I hear the the schism. You use the word schism, the, the mm-hmm. divergence here, the dichotomy you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And if you look at it from the perspective of the tree of life and the and the Kabbalah, there there is a sense that because it's not about giving a, a class on the Kabbalistic tree of life, but there are a, a, a couple worlds, let's say. That as far as the as far as Kabbalah is concerned, that on, on this level of consciousness, on this plane of existence, we inhabit, in the sense that we are at the same time physical beings and emotional beings. I mean, there's more than that, but at this on this plane, those are 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 major players in how we live our day to day life as embodied divine. The major beings. players are the major so. players are the the physical, and when I talk about physical, in Kabbalah we call it the world of Asiya, the world of action, and in in that is the, the um, like the, the physical world. right yeah right cool. the concrete the the world that we walk 
yeah, in a day-to-day, the gross level of consciousness. Sure. So that world, that world of Asiya, contains what I call body-mind. And, you know, sometimes I, I joke around and say it should be one word, right? The <laughs> body-mind mm-hmm. walks in that world. And then you have the emotional body, which obviously is not disconnected from that per se, it's, but it, it kind of is, is above that. It's, it's called, it's the, the world uh, of Yetzirah, the world of formation. And that emotional body actually uh, is six-dimensional compared to the physical world, the world of Asiyah that is one-dimensional. So what the Kabbalah is actually saying is that at, at this level of consciousness, in the, in the gross level of consciousness, we are six-part emotional bodies, one-part physical mind bodies. Hmm. And I think it's really true. I mean, we think of ourselves, because we relate to what we think to the mind, as intellectual animals. We're about, you know, we're all, all about our ideas, our opinions, our concepts, and we think that is what drives and makes the human unique. But our spiritual masters say that we actually are six part emotion and only one part thought thought and, and physical right okay and in fact if you really look yeah if you really pay attention to who is this thing you called me that that walks around the world um, it's mostly driven by your emotions mm-hmm. i mean that's why all the marketing that you see on tv or everywhere they don't try yeah. to appeal to your intellect <laughs> they try to appeal to your emotion because 90 some percent and I don't want to put a you know it's not a scientific uh, scientific I'm sure it might be scientifically measured somewhere but an awful a vast amount, majority overwhelming yeah. majority yeah. of the decisions you make mm-hmm. are emotional decisions are based on your emotional construct sure from what you're going to decide to wear in the morning Mm-hmm. to whatever it is you buy. Most of the time we buy based on emotions, not based on rational. I, I mean, <laughs> I know I shouldn't eat this chocolate, but I do anyway. Yeah. It's like your emotions take you over. Or, which is why we, even if we don't have the money, we would go and buy a very expensive phone, computer, even though sure. we know we can't afford it, mm-hmm. because we're emotionally connected to that brand, to whatever. Or the identity that having that thing puts on us. Yeah. And that's not rational, right? Right. So the Kabbalah is really telling you that you're mostly, again, I'm stressing that, at this level of awareness, at Mm -hmm. this level of consciousness, which is the Mm -hmm. gross level of consciousness, you're mostly emotional. So when you talk about that split that you experience. That schism, yeah. That schism. At the moment of meta-overwhelm. A dissociative state. Yeah, it probably is. And probably from a very animalistic perspective, like antelope or caribou or whatever will get eaten by a lion. And the emotional component to that animal just disconnects because it doesn't want the body... The body, like, it's too overwhelming emotionally to stay in the body. And so the emotions, like, disconnect um, so that the emotions don't have to experience the pain of being eaten. And I totally butchered the scientific concept of that, but I'm sure there's scientists who could very easily um, explain, explain. Yeah, so it feels to me what, what you're talking about is that your, your identification, instead of being a whole body, mind, and emotion identification that you had prior to the trauma, uh, there was a dissociation there where you could relate much more to your emotional identity and, and relate much less to your physical identity. Is that what I'm hearing? So you, in those two tracks, right, in those two yeah. different tracks, um, when you felt that split, maybe there was a tendency to go more towards the, here's my emotional self that is going in this direction that might not be where the physical self is going now, maybe because you had this, the antelope syndrome thing we were just <laughs> talking about. Sure. But reverse. Reverse. How do you mean reverse? Well, because you felt maybe, and I'm just projecting here, sure, but okay. you felt maybe that the body was, um, I'm not going to say damaged, but you, you couldn't have trust in it anymore. There, like, yeah. Like, right? Yeah. So for me, like it, there was a moment um, about a year after the accident 
um, I push myself real hard to go to college anyway, to like mm-hmm. stay with my age, even though I really probably wasn't ready. I mean, I only took one quarter off to recuperate when I really probably should have taken a whole year off. But now we're getting into the shoulda, coulda, woulda stuff right. that I don't want to entertain. But like there was a, you know, the spring um, of my freshman year, there was like a class I dropped because math was too hard, but it wasn't that math, it just, it was going to require more focus than I was able, more focus than I was intellectually prepared to apply. Mm-hmm. And so it was almost like a giving up right. based on the felt experience that I was broken. Right. And, and then there was a, a def- definitive like fall from grace. Yeah. If, yeah, to to use a common phrase, like just definitely like after that, I went, oh, well, oh, what are we really here for? What is college really all about? Social and drinking. And so I just went off the deep end and just did the college thing. Wow. Um, but I graduated and I did pretty, I did well in school. So like, I mean, it worked. Or no, but I, it worked. I, I, I hear, I, I absolutely hear what you're saying. It was like. And I hear the grief in that. It was, you know, a, when it was you, a silent despair. Yeah. It was like... I hear the grief. Yeah. And there was nobody to share it with. When you talk about the fall from grace, that mm-hmm. really resonated for me. Mm. You know, because you have this expectation mm. that you'll still be able to perform those simple tasks or, or to, to understand the math class because, yeah. because you've been at... How many math, math classes is what before? I do, and I'm math, good right? Yeah, and suddenly it's not there for you because, like you said, you're damaged, right? You know, and right. and I and I, that's the grief. That's the that's grief. the loss. Yeah, yeah, that's the loss. Yeah. People experience that um, aging. Ooh, yeah. I, I'll give you a silly example. Sure. But very silly. Please. I started to play tennis again. Uh, maybe it's, you know, <laughs> just because I had a heart attack and, and like, you know, maybe I need to prove myself that I can sure. be athletic again. <laughs> you know, I used to play in my teenage years and college years, but I have not touched a racket for 20 plus 30 years, you know, wow. something like that. Yeah, yeah. But then, you know, I was like, in a, you know, so I, I, I took a few lessons to get, quote unquote, back on the horse and... sure. And I started playing, uh, you know, and I tried to play with guys that are, you know, that are, that are players. Because I want to get back at the level I, I'm looking to get back to. Yeah, at the level you think you should be at. The shoot I could, yeah, yeah, the shoot here's yeah, the shoot yeah. right? <laughs> yep. And again, it's going to sound silly, but so there is this, you know, balls that this guy, you know, on the other side of the net hits. Yeah. And in my head, I get this ball no problem. Right. Because I've already played the move. You've done it before. I've You've done it seen one, it. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And I, it's, it's happening in my head. Mm-hmm. And I'm, you know, always show up a foot short. Or I never mm-hmm. make it to... Mm-hmm. But it's like, how is this possible that, you know, I know I can do yeah, this yeah. in here. Yeah. But the body doesn't do it. Almost like the... The slow unraveling of the body's capabilities. Right, that's that's aging oh. in a lot of ways. That's yeah. the experience most people have of aging. The things that you were able to do, you know, suddenly are beyond your reach. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of grieving and mourning yeah. that happens through that process. So, you know, in a lot of ways, and I know there's a lot of people that are working to support people in their aging process or people like us who um, have had some traumatic uh, physical experiences and Mm -hmm. therefore are no longer able to do what we used to be able to. And in our mind, we should, we should, here's the should again. (laughs) But, you know, and that's that experience of brokenness. And, and for me, I even had that conversation with uh, one of the person, one of the guys I was playing the other day, you know, about, so do you, you know, do you think we'll, like, this is how good our tennis is ever going to get now because we are reached that age. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Right? Is it only a decline from where we are? Or, you know, get better? A, a long plateau. You know, oh, like, yeah, yeah. 
I will ever Off into the sunset. Right? <laughs> you know, and it's oh. like, okay, what is the, what is that? You know, and you can just watch that thought and yeah, you know, and, and let it let it be what it is. You don't have to you don't have to believe in it. You know, that's the thing. You don't have to collapse into it. You don't have to believe in it. You don't have to believe any of your thoughts, by the way. I mean, they're not yours. You don't cause them. They're just passing through. They're passing through. So you really don't have to believe any of the stories you're telling yourself and any of the thoughts that are suddenly, you know, arising in your awareness. Almost like, almost like these thoughts are a, are a side effect, like almost like a discharge of the natural processes of the brain. They just are. A, a, just a gaseous off charge. And... The nature of thought is dissatisfaction. Mm. I mean, if you really look at most of your thoughts, yeah, yeah, yeah. except, you know, mm-hmm. except the, the one fractions of a very few seconds when you feel contentment. <laughs> um, and then the thought uh-huh. arises that, well, that was good, but this was better. You know, the other uh-huh. time, the other day, that yeah. ice cream, the that sunset, or whatever. Yeah. You know, so when the fragility of that moment of right. wow yeah. passes, then the thought comes back and says, "Well, let's compare that now with this other experience this whatever that was so similar, but was totally different." Because yeah. thought is discom- dis- dissatisfaction, mm-hmm. discomfort, and dissatisfaction. That's what thoughts, you know. That, but the, the look, it's not all bad. I mean, you know what that what that nature of thought gave us is progress. Mm-hmm. Because we're perpetually discontent, we're perpetually yeah. dis, you know, looking for discontented. This, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we're, we're <laughs> perpetually uh, in discomfort, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Because of the thought, then we we seek ways to improve our, you know, and that defines, like you said, progress. Uh, absolutely, sure. The so whole, most of the world, actually. So I can. <laughs> that totally is a perfect transition to um i guess my one of my last topics that i wanted to to talk about with you rabbi is um so first we talked about identity and then we talked about emotions and i really also wanted to talk about um transitions the whole concept of survivors to thrivers is the transition Uh from surviving to really engaging with whatever our whatever it is that we as you know fully self-owning fully uh i guess the term that i've used is personal agency, mm-hmm. the ability to just be fully who you are right? and the transition from surviving to that being fully who you are concept and all transitions in general. I wrote you an email, I don't know, a couple months ago and I was like, so um, just to be curious, how does Judaism like respond to transitions? And you were like waking up prayer, showering prayer, bathroom prayer, like, you listed, like, a whole bunch of, like, little things that, like, you know, going through a doorway, like, it's all, they're all little transitions, and I, I only bring up transitions because everything is an unfolding transition, and I want to tie together the concepts of grief with transitions and surviving and thriving and, like, kind of just put all that on a plate and say, what do we do with all that? Because it's a whole lot for anybody to handle. And it's a lot of concepts that we really don't even have a language for or a way to talk about in this culture. And I'm interested to see if Judaism, if you are not related to Judaism, have any kind of connections to those transitional yet, you know, bridging the past to the future, but still living fully presently here. You know, um, I'm... I'm I'm deeply listening to what you're saying, and uh, here's what's coming up for me right now. And again, you know, it's not, I'm not, you know, I I don't have notes, so it's going to be whatever it's going to be, but it feels what you're talking about connects to me to a process of forgiving Mm. and forgiveness. There's there's a a kind of a three-stage, three-stage process in, in forgiving um, that actually a lot of what we do through the high holidays and the fall, it's, it's in Hebrew, we call it slicha for the first level, mechila for the th- second level, and kapara for the third level. And it moves us actually, in fact, through the high holidays as, you know, there are three major convocations. And each convocation can be seen through the prism of one of those 
Slicha is number one, which means... Almost like to apologize, right? Which means, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Sure. Mechila, uh, which is um, which is a little more complicated, but it's uh, it's about acceptance. I would th- I'll talk more about it, but sure. I'm just giving kind of the headers. Sure. And kapara is exactly what you're talking about. It's transition. Mm-hmm. So that once you've gone through the first two stages, now what? Now what do you do? How are you moving? moving How do you forward? manifest? How do you manifest your, your, your learning from your experience right. into this world? But I think I'm not, I'm, I'm actually thinking it's not a mistake that I'm bringing up. And again, I don't know why, but it's not a mistake that I'm bringing up forgiveness because I think forgiveness is also part of this sure. uh, transition from trauma to thriving. What do you call it? Survivor. Surviving. Yeah. Survive to, from survivor to thriver. Because there is a part of this that has to include forgiveness. Sure. Uh, I'm thinking self-forgiveness. Oh, yeah. To let go of yeah. the shoulda, oh, yeah. coulda. Yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, and in a lot of ways, I'm gonna even going to push it um, to... Um, for those of us who still might hold on to a concept of the punishing divine or retribution from the divine, um, not just forgiving ourselves, but forgiving God. Mm-hmm. Why did God let me do this, or why? Did Whatever it is, but forgiving yeah. God, or I mean, for the for the atheists out there, then I, forgiving self, forgiving self, forgiving self. the other as well. Yeah. You know, this is this whole process. So you you start with first of all getting in a place when you're ready to forgive, and that's the first stage. That's slicha. Mm-hmm. That's I now forgive, right? Which is really the hardest step. It's like getting in this place where you say, okay, I want to I wanna work on forgiving the, whatever the circumstances of that event, of that trauma, of what I did, what they did, what happened, what didn't happen, and, and enter into that space of I, I, I can't no longer carry the pains and the suffering of that trauma. I want to heal it. I want to heal around it. And when you reach that place of wanting to no longer carry the pain of that, then you can step into this moment of let me let me work on healing that and let me work on forgiving that. So that's that's stage one. Stage two is is mechila, which which is often about letting go of our need for the past to have been any different than it was. Letting go of our need for the people who participated in the trauma mm-hmm. to have been any different than they were for in sure. that moment. Sure. Letting go of our need for anything and anyone to have been any different than it ever could have ever been. Right. And so there's an element of just the only... like Like accepting that the only... That the best possible scenario and the best possible outcome of any of the infinite possibilities that are continually unfolding is like that exactly here, exactly now, exactly where I am is exactly the best scenario that ever could have unfolded. I wouldn't even qualify it. Okay. I wouldn't qualify it. You just remove the word best from what you said. It is whatever happened, happened. Mm -hmm. End of story. And I, and it's important that, that, that I say end of story because that's really yeah. what it is about, isn't it? Sure, yeah, it's all a story after all, isn't it? After that, it's all story. Yeah. You know. Um, so it's, it's, it's critical for us not to actually qualify and, and simply be with what happened happened. And I don't want to deny it. Like, I don't want to deny the pain that, that others, I mean, if we're talking about trauma that has been caused by other people, right? And that's a, there's a lot of that. Yeah. I don't want to deny what they did. Mm-hmm. I don't want to deny the damage that they did. I don't want to, you know, forgiveness is not... Um, denial. It's not denial. It's yeah. not uh, giving carte blanche. It's not erasing. Carte blanche? Yeah, it's it's not like uh, absolving. Sure, gotcha. Um Forgiving is 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 not letting the other off the hook. It's got nothing to do 
with letting the other off the hook. Forgiving is about letting ourselves off the hook. Like we let ourselves off the hook in the sense that we allow ourselves to no longer carry the burden of pain and suffering that is connecting to our own trauma. Yeah, it's a, it, that's, a, that's a really interesting, like I heard that idea and I've had a really, like personally, I've had a really hard time with that idea mm-hmm. because, I mean, you know, this kid made fun of me or, and that changed the whole course of my life because it changed my perspective on things or my teacher said this thing about me and so it changed my perspective about myself as a learner or this boss I had was a bad boss or this wife or this girlfriend or whatever it is. But I think where that connects for me, and I've thought about this so a lot, um, is that for me, it's like giving myself permission to have been how I was, not expecting that I should have done things differently to have changed the outcome from that event. So rather than forgiving the other person, like you said, forgiving myself. Absolutely. That's the same thing. Yeah. So, you know, it's about that. It's also um, allowing who you were to uh, to have been exactly who you were in that moment. Yeah. It's heavy stuff. But, but I think it's part of the process. So the third phase, which I think is where you're going with this transition, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So how do you move forward? Yeah. Well, it, 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 really, it, it really awakens from that place. Like... What is being called forth from this process will arise normally when you are on the other side of it. And it, it's going to be so clear to you. When you are on the other side of when it. When you are in that space, when, you've, when you work through the first two stages, let's say. And it's, again, I can, I can do it justice. I usually do it over a month-long period. Sure. So I can do it in, in three minutes. But let's, let's imagine <laughs> that... Sure. That, that you were able to move through this process of self-forgiveness, of forgiveness of other, of forgiveness of God, of life, whatever you want to call it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you get in that, in that place of, of being whole with us. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Then you're learning from that. What you get from that will infuse, will will move you from within to discovering what now the next step is for me to oftentimes support the healing of others from your experience. So that's what this is all about for me, is what you're saying. Supporting the healing of others through the whole process. I think it's, it's, it's what it is about for you, but I think it's what it is about for every human being because... Mm-hmm. because when you have that experience, it is it is human and natural to say, "How can this benefit others?" Yeah, I think it's uh, you know, unless I mean, again, it's I don't want to make it a universal thing. I I have no way of measuring it. Sure. Right, but it, it's um, you know, some people just you know go back go back to work the next day and forget about everything and yeah. you know and and move on from that. Um, but I think. Often those of us who are asking the questions you are asking mm-hmm. or are listening to this conversation maybe is might be because they live through something and they've maybe at some level or another have have gained some additional learning that may not be available to those who have not gone through that trauma. Yeah. Right? And are seeking a way now to I don't know, contribute. Yeah. Right? So that that so something that trauma yeah. and their and their learning and their surviving can now allow, you know, for healing to take place beyond themselves. Yeah. So it it, it, it it they kind of reclaim it. Yeah. Right? They they no yeah. longer are how do we say that? They no longer are victims. Right. It's almost like choosing that. They transition yeah. into from victims to um, active participants. To, exactly to active yeah. participants. To, it's almost like choosing the trauma or choosing the whatever occurrence that happened. I, I, in fact, it, it is. Other way. In fact, it is. Interesting. Yes. Can I choose who I am 
as I am right now. And therefore, can I, is, the, is there something in this, in this experience, that I can now share to benefit others? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, in Judaism, it's all about transition. I mean, I think a lot of, if not most of spiritual practice in whatever denomination, whatever, whatever, um, what, whatever um, religion, whatever belief you have, or no beliefs at all, uh, is, is truly about managing mindfully transitions in life with, with, with presence. The word mindfully. Yeah. Mindful. The word mindful is so is so widely used for like be mindful of this thing be mind, like be mindful when you meditate be mindful of this other person like what is it just means pay attention what does that actually mean well, for you well in fact literally uh, I don't know literally is always also an interesting word to define but <laughs> um, it, it is about paying attention so you can use it as paying attention you know pay attention when you cross the street sure to see what cars are coming right. But the way I use it is 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 pay attention moment to moment to the to the aliveness within you, mm. the breath and all the that. everything the breath the thoughts the emotions, you know to live mindfully is to live present, to live here mm-hmm. to live now, not to be lost in the thoughts of yesterdays or the thoughts of tomorrows or. Right. Your to-do lists, or you know, whatever, whatever you have in front of you. All the busyness that happens. The busyness of the mind that is always yeah. dissatisfied and always looking for the next things to hold on to. Yeah. And in fact, spiritual practices are there to help you slow down. And interesting. Yeah. Smell, you know, we're in Seattle, so smell the coffee. <laughs> um, <laughs> smell the rain. Smell the trees. Yeah. You know. <laughs> That's funny. So yeah, we we've we've covered a lot of ground. I'm a little yeah. concerned about this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we yeah, I mean I've gotten enough background to have this conversation from you over the last what two years or so, like I right. said at the beginning. So I hope that whoever's listening is able to just like glean anything up from it. How do you feel about in the concept of all of these identities, emotions, transitions? I'm kind of putting you on the spot here. How do you feel about doing a couple minutes meditation, guided meditation? I would love to do that, yeah. Yeah, we could do that. Awesome. How do we set up? How do we prepare? Could we just Um, jump in? Yeah, we can simply jump in. I'm going to assume that whomever is listening is sitting down. I think that would be a fair assumption. If not, you better sit down now. And not driving a car, sitting down. You do not meditate (laughs) while driving a car. Or any other heavy machinery. You need to clean to close your eyes, so it wouldn't work. You know, I'm just going to do just a few minutes of of um, centering, uh, relaxation, meditation, um, because I think all of us can benefit from that. So yeah, find a comfortable sitting position. And exactly, begin to pay attention to your breath, just as it is. Again, it's all about being present to what is exactly as it is. Not wanting anything to be any different than it is. So as you start to look inside at how your breath is breathing, and believe me, you don't breathe. Breath is happening on its own, so let go of trying to control it. And simply pay attention. If your breath right now is short, it is shallow, and that's exactly what it is. If you find that your breath right now in this moment feels like it's deep and it's long, and that's fine, that's exactly how it is right now, and that's okay. Either way, it makes no difference. So you have your eyes closed, and if you're sitting on a chair, try to see if you can put both feet on the ground. And then gently put your hands uh, to rest on your lap. And see if you have any tension in your hands. Oftentimes, we don't realize, but our hands, the way our fingers are 
are moving, our hands often time are very tensed. So see if you can just relax your hands. They can be, you know, face down on your lap or facing up, whatever is comfortable for you. The point is to relax completely. Now with that, I'd like to invite you to um, let your shoulders drop down and away from the ears. Let your arms, you know, just completely relax as well. And see if you are holding any tension in the belly. Oftentimes we keep our belly tucked in. Let it float. Let it float up and down. Deeply. Release any tension that you might hold in the belly. And simply watch the breath. Now turn your attention to your jaw. Oftentimes, we hold a lot of tension in the jaw as well. One way to release the jaw is to open the mouth ever so slightly. Feel where you find your jaw relaxing most. Sometimes you have to open your mouth a little wider. Sometimes just slightly is enough. Just play with it. See where you find the most relaxing place. And let the tongue rest at the bottom of your mouth. It might cause you to swallow your saliva from time to time. That's okay. Doesn't matter. And if you, uh, if you want, let the tension on your face melt away. Oftentimes I feel we hold our face like a mask. If you can release all the tension of the muscles of the face, the, the, the cheeks, the, the forehead around the eyes, you start feeling a deep sense of relaxation. Still being with your breath, just as it is, watching it come and go, come and go. And feel into the deep relaxation of this moment. Feel into the aliveness pulsating through you as you. Feel into the heaviness of the body. And see if you can relax even more. See if next time you exhale, you can use your exhale to surrender a little further. And to really let every muscle of the body completely relax. And with the next exhale to empty yourself a little more. To surrender a little more. There's nothing to do, nowhere to go. Just being here, now. Breathing in and breathing out. There is no limit to how much you can really release. So go for it. Next time you exhale, go a little deeper. Go a little further.
simply remain in the silence for a few seconds, enjoying the rarity of breathing in the silence. And so in a few seconds, we'll bring this meditation to a close. Gently and kindly bringing awareness back into the room in which you are. Listening to the sounds around. And begin wiggling your toes and your fingers. Moving your hands and stretching the body in any way that feels comfortable and supportive. And when you're ready, gently open your eyes. Wow. Rabbi Olivier Ben Chaim, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Uh, this was a pleasure. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Survivors to Thrivers podcast with Rabbi Olivier Ben Chaim. Feel free to share in the comments below. Also, please connect me with someone you know who has a good story about transforming trauma or about letting go of what holds us back. Until next time, I wish you presence, acceptance, and wellness.